is The Guardian. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here, coming to you from Gadigal Land. In more than 80 countries around the world, people living with HIV still face criminalisation. Today, we're bringing you an episode from The Guardian's global news podcast, Today in Focus, where you'll hear from two people in the United States who face criminal charges for being HIV positive. Okay, here is one of those people, Lashonda Salinas, talking to host Hannah Moore. Back in about 98, 99, at our school, they bring American Red Cross up and they do a blood mobile. I went and gave blood, did everything they had asked me to do. Maybe a month or so later, I got a certified letter in the mail. I went to the post office and picked it up. And I noticed it was this big, thick package. I'm like, what in the world? This is from America Red Cross. What is it? So I'm fumbling through all the papers. And then all of a sudden, I see this in big letters. We cannot use your blood because it was tested and we found HIV antibodies in your blood. Right there, my heart stopped. And how old were you then? I was 16 years old. And then from there, I went to the doctor and got on a regimen of medicine and I've been undetectable ever since. Lashanda Salinas is one of the more than 38 million people across the world who are living with HIV. Being diagnosed with this autoimmune deficiency isn't a death sentence anymore. Because of the advances in medicine, it's possible for people to live a long and healthy life, to have sex and not pass on HIV to their partner. But the stigma that became attached to HIV during the height of the AIDS crisis is still ongoing. You know, when I met people to, um, like, to date, it was really hard because as soon as they hear the word HIV positive, you're contagious. Which is not true. It's a misconception. Correct. Lashanda did end up meeting someone who she thought she could trust. He was an older gentleman. We met on a dating site. And, you know, I told him I was HIV positive and he was okay with that. I even told him on the phone conversation and I had told him when we met eye to eye. We decided that we wanted to be in a relationship. So I moved in with him. The relationship, you know, it really wasn't going good. We did a lot of arguing. So, you know, we both decided that we were going to mutually separate but we will be friends. The police come to my job. They're telling me that this gentleman that I had dated is pressing charges on me because I didn't tell him I was HIV positive. He had told the officers that he seen some medicine in the room and he wanted to know what I was taking it for. So he went to the pharmacy and asked, 
and they had told him, you know, this medicine is used for people that is HIV positive. That's when he decided to go press charges. It was like, I didn't tell him at all. So I winded up going to jail that night. And when I got there, I met with the magistrate and he charged me with criminal exposure to HIV. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the people sent to prison for having HIV. Edwin Barnard, you're the executive director of the HIV Justice Network. And what you do is research into the places where HIV is criminalised and you campaign for those laws to be amended or dropped. I've been speaking to Lashanda, who's in Tennessee, and ended up being sent to jail because of her HIV status. Across the US, what's the legal situation and how do the laws on this vary from state to state? So the United States has a very complex system uh, where each state has its own laws, but there are also federal laws. And around half of US states have laws written specifically with HIV in mind that criminalize primarily non-disclosure of HIV status before sex. Those laws can also criminalize things like spitting and biting. And there are also uh, states in the United States that use kind of general criminal laws like assault or um, crazy laws like um, terroristic threats uh, that have also been applied to people with HIV. It's not only in the US where these types of laws are in place for exposing someone to HIV. Yes, HIV criminalization is actually a global phenomenon. There are around 80 countries in the world that have HIV-specific criminal laws, laws that were written by lawmakers that single out people living with HIV for special treatment, uh, usually you know, mandating disclosure or criminalizing people for not disclosing. Um, and then there's a whole range of other countries, uh, around 50, that have been using general criminal laws or what, using a wide range, including uh, the United Kingdom, both England and Wales and Scotland, which of course has a different uh, jurisdiction. Why are those laws in place? HIV-specific criminal laws started back in the 80s, um, and the United States was the first country to enact them in about 1986-87. Initially, these uh, many of the early laws were passed really because lawmakers wanted to be seen to be doing something about the uh, AIDS pandemic and thought that this was potentially uh, one way of, of, of doing something. The problem is there was never any evidence, there's never been any evidence that criminalization um, actually benefits public health. Um, and in fact, it does the opposite. It really undermines public health. First of all, it contradicts 40 years of public health messaging around HIV that encourages everybody to take responsibility for their own sexual health. And criminalization instead assigns responsibility for HIV prevention to people who know they're HIV positive. 
when these laws are then um, incorporated into the public health system, it can really undermine trust between people living with HIV and uh, health professionals. It can deter people from talking openly about their sexual practices and looking for advice to minimize their risk because they're afraid of of, uh, that being used against them in a criminal investigation. It's astounding to me that these laws, many of which were made in the 80s at the height of fear around HIV and AIDS, are still on the books today when there is treatment available. Why haven't they been dropped from the law books across the states and across the world? Well, there is uh, a slow realisation among some law and policymakers in some countries that these laws are not fit for purpose. Where policymakers have listened to civil society to the UN, to public health officials, um, they have acted. And so there are countries uh, in all parts of the world that that have had HIV-specific criminal laws that have repealed them, including Zimbabwe this year in the Democratic Republic of Congo a few years ago on the African continent. A number of countries across uh, Europe have also uh, removed their laws. But I think the problem is, is that it's just not on policymakers' radars. And the idea of decriminalizing HIV is often not seen to be a, a very popular thing to do. In your work, what are you able to do to try and change attitudes in terms of both raising awareness, but also changing the the ideas that policymakers have across the world? So the key thing, of course, is we need to we need to gather the evidence of the harms of HIV criminalization and also tell the the very powerful human stories of people um, who have survived prosecution. That is a, a very powerful way of ensuring that policymakers hear about the harms of the laws that they may themselves may not have passed. It may these laws may be ten or twenty or thirty years old, but um, that's how hearts and minds are changed. The good news, though, is that in the past ten years, the situation has been improving. Uh, this is primarily due to the people living with HIV who've raised awareness of how unjust and unscientific and unhelpful these laws and prosecutions are. Um, And they've ended up getting a a huge amount of support from public health agencies, including the CDC. And in fact, last year on World AIDS Day, President Biden um, actually uh, said that HIV criminalization was a problem that states needed to uh, sort out. Lashanda, I can only imagine how confounding it must have felt when the police turned up at your workplace and said that you were being charged for exposing this former partner to HIV. Yes, ma'am, that's how I felt. And I was in this daze of, you know, okay, is this a dream? Are they playing with me? Is this some type of prank? 
And, you know, things didn't set in until I got to jail and heard that door slam behind me. And that's the worst feeling I felt in my life because not only that, my dad was in the hospital dying from brain cancer. And my mom was there with them. And, you know, I had to call my mom and say, Mom, you know what? Your baby girl is going to jail because my ex is claiming that he didn't know I was HIV positive. Gosh, so where, I mean, where was your mind at that point? It was hurtful because I know the real truth because I did tell him. Now, when I went to jail to do my plea, I mean, to court to do my plea and to take it, they just told me three years probation granted. So I thought everything was done. I just had to be on probation for three years. And what was the reality? The reality was I was a sex offender. In the eyes of the law, you have to sign on to the sex offenders register. Yes, ma'am. That's the most terriblest thing. Because I didn't know, being that it was a sex crime, as they called it, that, that I would have to be on the registry. And that has been the hardest part of my life. What does it mean for your life to have to be on the sex offenders registry? You know, I had to sit in a classroom with guys that have intentionally molested children. And I have to sit here and try to participate in these so I can get off of probation. I had to attend that class every week for three years. I had to come up with $30 every week to attend that class. Not only that, I had to take a lie detector test every six months to prove to them that I'd never been around a child. Because they will ask you, since your last lie detector test, have you been around any children? I have to pay $150 every year for fees to be on the sex offender registry. And that's for the rest of your life? This is for the rest of my life. And I've been on this for 15 years. I have to, you know, be aware of my surroundings. If I'm in a grocery store and a child walks in, I either have to leave the store or go to the other side of the store. And when I need to go back to that store, aisle or section, I have to make sure there's no child there. Because if it is, I have to go right back across the way and wait. And having that criminal conviction, in in what other ways does that impact your life in terms of, you know, uh, finding a job, finding somewhere to live, starting relationships if you want to do that? In terms of getting a house and a job, you know, some places, okay, if you're a felon, they'll let you live there. But once I put on there that I'm a convicted felon because of cruel exposure to HIV and I'm on the sex offender registry, it's like denied in the same way for a job. But, you know, jobs and housing, it's really, really hard to get because if it's near a daycare a school, a park, or anywhere where children will come, I can't be there. I can't live there. I can't work there. Getting in a relationship is 
really hard and stressful because you're trying to get to know this person. And then when you realize you like him and he likes you, then you have to bring out, well, I have to tell you. How do you feel towards the man who reported you? I was mad. I was frustrated. I was hurt. I was depressed. I just didn't want anything to do with him because because of him, my life has drastically changed. The case of the man who reported you, he didn't have to prove that he had actually tested positive with HIV. He got tested one time and it was negative. And they tested him two weeks later and it was negative. So he never... Uh, I never passed the virus to him. Amelia Abraham, you've written about HIV criminalisation for The Guardian. Since the 80s, when many of these laws were brought in, medicine has advanced so much. And getting an HIV diagnosis isn't a death sentence anymore. You know, as in Lashanda's case, she's been taking medicine since she was a teenager, which means that the virus is undetectable. Can you just talk me through what treatments are available to people now? Right. So you're totally right. With the drugs that are now available, you can live a long, healthy life. Um, These drugs, antiretroviral drugs, came in in 1996. And since 1996, they've improved drastically. You know, you do have to take medication every day, but ultimately uh, you can live a very healthy life. And the other thing that these drugs do, these therapeutic drugs, is they can bring your viral load low enough so that you are not able to uh, transmit the virus. They call that undetectable equals untransmittable. And a lot of people that I spoke to who have been criminalised under these laws were actually untransmittable at the time that they were arrested. So on a scientific level, they couldn't actually pass on the virus. We also now have PrEP, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, a pre-exposure drug that you can take if you're at risk of contracting HIV or in what we call a key population. And if you take PrEP correctly, it's 99% effective in preventing transmission. So a lot of these laws were also created long before PrEP existed too. Well, in a very small number of cases, some people who know that they're HIV positive have gone out and deliberately infected people that they've had sex with. What would be the fair way to deal with that under the law? So the fair way to deal with that would be to prosecute when there is proof of intent without reasonable doubt. And that would target these specific cases of malicious intent to pass on HIV, rather than sort of acting as an umbrella law that catches all these other people into it. Really, these laws should hinge around intent to pass on HIV. And the way that they're applied at the moment really doesn't necessarily hinge around criminal intent. It hinges basically just around the health condition. You can be arrested under these laws based on the fact that you are HIV positive alone. And that's what we're actually seeing happen. Who are these laws affecting the most then? So there are no national statistics for the US in terms of the number of people that have been arrested under these laws. 
But researchers have looked at cases one by one and looked at cases on a state by state level. And they found that since these laws were created, about 3000 people, possibly a lot more, have actually been arrested under the law. So that's a huge number. And then within that, there are certain groups that are disproportionately affected. So the Williams Institute, who do research in this area, have found that um, that there is a racial bias and black people are disproportionately affected. Also, sex workers are disproportionately affected, trans people are disproportionately affected, and women are disproportionately affected as well. We've seen some cases when it comes to women where partners are using these laws as a kind of control mechanism or a way to to punish women, um, perhaps if there's a breakup. Or they, they sort of use these laws and they hang them over women, um, almost like a threat. Is that how it tends to work then? Does it tend to be former partners reporting? Yeah, it's quite common. So for two of the people I spoke to, that's what happened. It was an ex-partner who actually pressed charges following a breakup and claimed that the accused had not told them that they were HIV positive. Whereas both the people I spoke to say quite adamantly, you know, I told this person at the start of the relationship that I was HIV positive. And these laws were almost used, yeah, as a way to punish them following the breakup. I just sort of felt like I was walking around with this heaviness on me. Because I didn't really know how to explain this to my family. Or to anyone, really. Robert Suttle was diagnosed with HIV 18 years ago, when he was about to graduate from college in Louisiana. Even though I was in a state of shock, I had to get it together because I still had to work, still had to finish school, and I still had to figure out what the future was going to be beyond graduating. So I had to just carry all that with me in sort of a state of uh, silence within myself internally. How did you negotiate romantic or sexual relationships once you knew about your status? Uh, thank you for that question. It's a great question because I always say that uh, when you're diagnosed, you're not automatically given the skills to negotiate how and if and when to disclose your status. It's something that you just have to t- test it and try and see because um, people generally respond all sorts of ways when they're introduced or faced with this issue around HIV. And not a lot of people are very um, uh, receptive. Not a lot of people are very reasonable. And I think that creates a a greater problem in our world, especially as it relates to stigma. Um, But for me, I... It took me a while. It just took me a while to really get comfortable with living with HIV myself. Uh, again, besides the disclosure, it's like really accepting it yourself. Uh, I wasn't in denial or anything. It's just really embracing that this is now a part of me, a part of my life. And how do I navigate living with that and, and carrying on? But you did eventually find somebody that you wanted to be with. Yeah, so I did eventually meet someone in a casual way. And in this instance, this was New Year's Eve of 2007 going into 2008. And so we were out with some friends. And um, and this guy that I, I like, we went home together and, and um, I was on treatment at that time. And um, we did end up having sex and we ended up getting to know each other over 
like a three month period. At the end of the three months, the relationship ended. Uh, it was a very, as I say, contentious type of relationship. I felt I disclosed um, at the beginning of that relationship. I thought we were fine. Um, but when he was upset with me, uh, I think it added fuel to the fire um, by sort of focusing on my HIV status. I think it 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 compelled him to, um, to press charges against me for not disclosing it. And as a result, um, I was arrested and I was arrested at work in front of my colleagues. And what's so ironic about it is that I'm working at, at the Court of Appeal. I, I was arrested there in front of my colleagues um, in the office where I worked there at the court. So um, that had to be one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. I was convicted for, in Louisiana, the statue is called intentional exposure to the AIDS virus. And with that required a prison sentence. I did six months in prison and also it required that you had to register as a sex offender for 15 years. And and what can you say in defence? Because it strikes me that this is a case of one person's word against another. Your former partner saying, Robert didn't disclose his HIV status to me. And you saying, yes, I did. You know, when you're going through it, it doesn't seem like you have a voice. It doesn't seem like you have an opportunity to really state uh, what needs to be said. Uh, because at for, well, in my experience... It, it it was as if, like, I didn't have a right to say anything, even though I had an attorney. But none of that really mattered because of the fact that I'm being accused of something that seems to be so egregious and and awful simply because of how you're being processed through the court system or how the fact that you're being treated in, in jail. I mean, you're being arrested. You're losing your job. Uh, you're losing your livelihood over something related to your status. So it, it's almost like you're guilty before you're even proven innocent when it should be the opposite, right? And one, if you're in court going through this, you must have done something wrong because surely no one's having sex with a person living with HIV. You know, it's like this assumption that you're out here doing wrong with your status. And so this narrative is 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 set. So you don't have a really great way of defending it, really, because everyone's perception is that if someone's having sex with someone that's HIV positive, they must be being deceived or they must be tricked um, into doing that. And that is so not the case. So I really didn't know everything that I understand now then, but even then I didn't feel like I had a voice. Coming up, Lashanda considers her future and the future of HIV criminalization. Hey, Laura Murphy Oates here. If you're enjoying Full Story, I think you'll really like another podcast we make here at Guardian Australia called Book It In. On Book It In, some of Australia's favourite authors open up about the ideas behind their books in personal and thought-provoking conversations that you won't hear anywhere else. This week, you'll hear ULRA woman Gilda Andrews and humanities professor John Carty in a frank and wide-ranging discussion about country. So I think when you find yourself within this 
system of things, of happenings, of utterances, of a bird arriving or a wind kissing your cheek. You know, we have names for all of these things in our language. Subscribe to Book It In Now on your favourite podcast player where you can listen to this episode with Gilda Andrews and John Carty on Thursday. Lashonda, how would you describe what your life is like now, day to day? It's depressing. I stay in the house mostly unless I go to the grocery store or I go to church or go to the doctor's office. I have a cousin that's fixing to graduate. And, you know, he's getting scholarships to different colleges. And he invited me to his graduation. I can't go. How do you tell your favorite cousin that you can't see him walk across the stage and he wants to know why? What do I tell him? He's too young to know what's going on. How do you tell a child that? That's the hardest thing in my life right now. I can't be around my family. So there's no more family vacations. When I do go to a person's house, I have to hope and pray that they don't bring their kids. And that's hard because you just can't go up to your family member and say, hey, I'm going to be there. Don't bring your kids. So if there is a child there, I go out and sit in the vehicle or I'll go down the street. So they'll fix me a place and I'll go somewhere and eat alone. Do you know know how much that hurts? How does it feel to you? I mean, to be educating people, to be passing on that knowledge, to be doing that advocacy work to to be talking to lawmakers in Tennessee, where you live. Does that feel satisfying? I can I can imagine that um, it's kind of double-sided that, you know, you could feel like, why should I have to do this? How does that feel to you? You know, I feel blessed to be doing this because they didn't have to choose me to do this. But they did, and I feel blessed to do it. And I just can't wait for the next chapter in my life that starts in January. In January, this is when, you know, we start rewriting our bill. And, you know, we try to get it on the books so where, you know, we can get there and Talk to the legislators, the senators, the representatives, and let them know, hey, this is real. Do you know how many people's lives that this law is messing up, especially for the ones that didn't do it intentionally? How hopeful do you feel that it will pass this time? I'm hoping and praying this year is the year that we get this passed. I'm not worried about Me being grandfathered in, I'm not worried about that. I can do this. But I'm I'm 
doing this for the other people that are coming behind me. That was LaShonda Salinas talking to host Hannah Moore. You also heard from reporter Amelia Abraham, Robert Suttle and Edwin Bernard, the executive director of the HIV Justice Network. This episode of Today in Focus was produced by Lucy Hoff with sound design by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer was Elizabeth Casson. Additional production by Joe Koning. Okay, we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>